one area of agriculture we struggle with fitting into our climate solutions, our farm solutions message, is grains production. Rural Roots is pretty obsessed with soil carbon sequestration, and an annual crop just can't compete with pasture or trees when it comes to that. Annuals, whether they're cabbage or canola, they aren't going anywhere. So we have been scratching our heads for a while trying to figure out how those annual seed crops that are essential for bread, cooking oils, plant-based proteins, how they can be good for the land. The answer was actually in the very first podcast episode we ever did, and in the words, it's not the cow, it's the how, as in how you manage your land. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're looking at intercropping. This podcast episode is the recorded audio from a webinar we did with Dr. Eric Bremer in partnership with Resilient Rules on June 3rd of 2020. Dr. Bremer is the head of research and development at Western Egg Innovations, which is one of four companies that make up the Western Egg Group, which is headquartered in Saskatoon. Dr. Bremer and Western Egg Innovations research soil nutrient bioavailability and they're about three years into a intercropping study in southern Alberta. Resilient Rules is like Rural Roots of Climate Solutions' unofficial sister organization. The reason I say that is because I'm not aware of any other organization that has a specific focus on climate and rural Alberta. If there are other organizations out there, well, first of all, I'm really sorry for what I just said. And second, Say hi, reach out. We love partnering with other organizations, especially if those organizations are trying to build strong, resilient, and thriving rural communities in Alberta. The towns of Bruderheim, Gibbons, and Lamont, so just north of Fort Saskatchewan, came together to create Resilient Rules. It's best described as a regional climate change adaptation and resilience project. I remember stumbling across Resilient Rules on Twitter one day. It was sometime last year, and I was just so happy to discover them. It was really cool to see local counties get behind something like this as well. We were supposed to host a series of workshops and field days with Resilient Rules, but unfortunately COVID kiboshed all that, so we moved on to Plan B, which was webinars. The second webinar we did with Resilient Rules was on perennial cereal grains with Aaron Daly, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta. And you can watch that one on YouTube, or you can download podcast episode 21. Our intercropping webinar with Dr. Bremer is also up on YouTube, which is worth checking out even after listening to this podcast episode, because if you look at the video, you can see the graphs, the charts, the images that were all in his PowerPoint presentation. As I hinted to in my intro, Rural Roots of Climate Solutions doesn't do a great job of covering grain or seed crop production. It's partially because of my own lack of experience with grains. I find it a lot easier to talk about livestock and vegetables because I've actually worked on livestock and vegetable farms. But annual crops aren't really going anywhere for the time being. People are still going to want to eat vegetables, bake bread, and cook with canola or sunflower oil. With this whole push for more plant-based proteins, annual crops have suddenly taken on even more importance in our diets. I'm really hopeful that some of these will be turned into perennials someday, 
In fact, if you go to the website of the Land Institute, which is based in Kansas, their plant breeding program has either produced or is working to produce perennial wheat, legumes, and oil seeds. In Alberta, perennial wheat and rye are being trialed near Lethbridge and at the Breton Plots. The research into perennial seed crops is exciting, but as far as I understand it, here in Alberta, it's very much in its preliminary stage. I think they might be a little bit further along in Manitoba, but I could be wrong. So in the meantime, how can an Alberta crop producer implement farm solutions that are also climate solutions on their land? Well, intercropping might be one of those ways. One of the reasons we're so obsessed with soil carbon sequestration is because it builds healthy soil, which in turn helps the land, which in turn helps productivity, which in turn helps the agriculture producer. Now, we all know about no-till already, and it's fairly widely practiced, so we're off to a good start in our pursuit of healthy soils on cropland. Right at the beginning of Dr. Bremer's presentation, he goes over the benefits of intercropping and healthy soil is prominent among those benefits, as it reduces the need for chemical inputs. By reducing chemical inputs, not only can a producer save on costs, but the carbon footprint of that canola or wheat crop should be less because those chemical inputs come from fossil fuels and often require energy from fossil fuels to be produced. Less chemical inputs, less emissions. And this is important. Nitrous oxide is rising. Nitrous oxide is a very potent greenhouse gas emission. It's far more powerful than methane or carbon dioxide. And nitrous oxide can be produced by the overuse of fertilizers. Land seeded to annual crops will likely never be able to be the kind of carbon sink that the native grasslands are or that the boreal forest is. But there are crop production practices out there that can reduce the need for chemical inputs, thus preventing some greenhouse gases from being produced in the first place. It's good for the farm, it's good for the climate. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Just introduce myself briefly. I uh, actually grew up on a dairy farm in British Columbia. But I kept going to school for some reason, ended up at the University of Saskatchewan for my master's and PhD, where I really got into uh, pulse crops. And that was actually my first foray into intercropping. We did some studies way back in the 1980s and always was keen on them, but never really got much chance to get back into them until about three years ago, where we got actually a, a grant to do some research from the uh, Alberta Pulse Growers, and that gave us an opportunity to jump in, and it'll be some of what I'm going to talk about uh, this afternoon. Now, I have set this up as sort of like a, a scientific presentation where I have slides and, and I'm talking. I will try to make sure that I talk enough so that those who don't see the slides will know where we're going with this. Anyways, my first slide was actually over on intercropping south of Tabor. You can see some windmills in the background, and it's uh, flax and uh, chickpea. And see more of those around. And that's just an example from even before we started this project. So it was, I think it was six, 2016 or 17. 
basically what intercropping is, is growing two or more crops at the same time. And what I want to talk about this afternoon is briefly, why would you want to do this? I'm going to very, again, quite briefly go over how you would go about intercropping, what are the big deals. I'm going to talk then about our research that we did in the last couple of years, and then we'll just leave it open for questions after that. So the next slide, I'm just going to talk about like why why would you try growing two crops at one time? And really, I think it all comes down to uh, getting that diversity. Right now, we usually grow one crop one year and then a different crop the next year. So we get diversity in our on our land. But when you grow them together, you've got more diversity happening at the same time. And you have this opportunity for the two different crops to interact with each other. And what you're hoping for is that you're going to have some synergies between the two different crops. So one might not need as much nitrogen, leaving more for the other one. Or one might need less water or need water later, leaving more water for the other crop. Uh, and those sort of things. So that you're hoping to get some synergies between your two crops and you're hoping then to get some maybe more yield off that one piece of land than growing them in two different years. Another big reason a lot of people are very interested in intercropping is the potential to reduce input costs. So maybe you don't have to put as much nitrogen fertilizer or other nitrogen amendments into the system, or maybe reduces the need for or improves your weed control. So you can use less, fewer herbicides or fewer passes with tillage, you know, those kind of things. Uh, reduce disease, that's a big one for the flax chickpea in your crop. Another reason is just to get your stability of yields because, you know, one crop likes one kind of condition, another crop likes a different kind of condition, but you never know what you're going to get. So, and you also have your landscape, top of the hills, bottom of the hills, etc. So by having different crops all growing at the same time, you're hopefully to get better overall yields because there will always be one crop that really likes that condition, that wet year or that drier year, and gives you overall better stable yields and more yields. And lastly, another reason why a lot of people get into that is because you're hoping that with the increased crop growth, you can also benefit the soil, the soil health. So those are a number of the reasons why people would be, are interested in trying intercropping. Um, the next slide, I just, what I did on this one here is I just have, uh, I didn't, couldn't get this information for Alberta. So what I have here is the intercrop acreage in Saskatchewan in 2019. And it does two things. One, it sort of illustrates some of the things that growers are doing. So for example, we got canola pea, we had about 18,000 acres that year. Um, another big one was chickpea flax, maybe about 4,000 acres. Wheat lentil, about 17,000 acres. Oat pea, another 10,000. And then there, there are also uh, some growers playing around with three crop mixtures. So I know one fellow doing pea, lentil, and camelina all together at the same time. The pea to take advantage of the wet, the lentil to take advantage of the dry, and the camelina because that's what he makes money with. 
So total acres in uh, Saskatchewan last year was about 73,000 acres and about 140 growers. It's a lot of people just trying it out. It seems to be certainly something that's coming up, a lot of discussion, a lot of interest in it. And a lot of, most of them are working with some kind of non-legume with the pulse legume. But there's actually possibilities beyond that as well. So just quickly, what are the biggest things? I always start at the end. Uh, you want to intercrop? Okay, how are you going to handle it when you harvest it? Um, one of the big things that we sort of hit some problems with is the, the big thing is to get your crops so that they're sort of synchronized when they uh, mature, or at least the crop that matures first doesn't shell out. The first year we did that, we did this with pea and canola. Was that 2018? Very hot, very dry. The pea was ready to harvest by middle of July pretty well started shelling out the canola hung on for another four weeks um so you want something that has good compatibility that way so that you can get out there setting up the combines is generally at least the guys who do that say that's not a problem but then the next question is well now i've got my bin full of all kinds of different stuff what am i going to do with that um and so the People who have really gotten into intercropping, they almost start with, well, how am I going to separate that seed once it comes off the, uh, out, of, out of there? Usually they want to separate them basically off the truck. So it goes from the combine into the truck. And then from there, it's basically separated before it's bent or, or stored. And most people who start out, in my next slide, I got a number of different things being shown, but the rotary screen I mean, first off, you start off with crops that are easy to separate quickly, like tiny canola versus big peas. And then you can use a rotary screen to very quickly, quite easily separate them out and send them to their different bins. People then, over time, get more and more sophisticated. We visited a couple growers last year in Saskatchewan. One fellow had a whole seed cleaner operation on a truck. Uh, Acton Farm in Minton. Another fellow had his whole, basically had pretty well a seed cleaning operation that could handle separating and cleaning up all his crops as they were coming off quickly and uh, efficiently. Most of these guys, they've been at it for maybe five, ten years. So you start there and you just build that up until you can really handle quickly like you say when you when you're doing harvesting you don't want to have extra headaches right and it certainly can be done but it's something you, you have to think about right away that's one of the first things you gotta get covered off the other thing that people maybe think about quite early on is seeding it's on my next slide and well first off there's different ways of seeding like for one you could have just alternate rows. Uh, the, the first example I showed you with flax and chickpea was like that. Uh, or you can have seeding in the same row or in close proximity. And then you have more interaction of the roots and you say, oh, that might be better. And then some people might actually even just put them in strips. So you have two or three rows of one crop and then two or three rows of the next crop. So there's different ways of going about it. Um, 
how much of a difference does it make? It depends a little bit on why the synergy is happening. So if you've got it above ground, maybe having separated seeds is uh, rows is is fine. If you're looking for synergy right in the root system, your chances are you want to have them interacting quite early and more. And here I, I just showed some some uh, research from Malfort, Saskatchewan by Molly, and he basically looked at same row versus alternate row for pea, pea canola or pea barley. And really, at the end of the day, his uh, overyielding production, LER, was a little better with same row, but it wasn't night and day. He, he, he kind of would say they both worked quite well. And he only found that when he added nitrogen, it sort of reduced the benefits for his system in, in that step. So a quick recap. Dr. Bremer mentioned three ways you can intercrop. There's alternate rows. So you do one row of flax, one row of chickpeas, one row of flax, one row of chickpeas. There's putting multiple different seeds in the same row or really close together. And then you can do strips. So three rows of canola, three rows of peas, three rows of canola, etc., etc. One type of intercropping I came across in my research is called relay cropping. And for some reason, I, I kept calling it rally cropping when I was recording this episode. But anyways, relay cropping is very similar to alternate rows. So you seed your first crop. And once that first crop reaches its reproductive stage, you seed the second crop in between those rows. The idea is the first crop is a slow-growing crop and the second crop is a fast-growing crop. Now, maybe this is a good time to point out that there's a difference between intercropping and companion cropping. They are quite similar, but in intercropping, you want to harvest both or all the crops that you've seeded. In companion cropping, even though you are seeding in a mixture of different crops, you actually only want to harvest one of those crops. Andy Kirschman, who is an agriculture producer near Hilda in southeastern Alberta, wrote an article about intercropping and companion cropping for our farmer's blog. And here's what he had to say about companion cropping. Companion crops don't have those issues of maturity and separation because only one of them is harvested. The rest are left to grow until a killing frost giving long-living roots and potential grazing opportunities in the fall after harvest. There are still some issues with herbicide compatibility with companion crops, but there are more options available depending on the species chosen. One big consideration is going to be plant height of the companion crops because they can still cause issues with harvest. But there can be an opportunity for introducing much more diversity into fields with companions as opposed to intercrops. I also found a University of Manitoba study from the early 2000s where they compared intercropping with crops and monoculture. The intercropping combinations the researchers chose were wheat canola, wheat pea, canola pea, and all three put together. They were compared to monocropped wheat, monocropped canola, monocropped peas. They also compared sprayed and unsprayed crops. Here are some of the results. 
Intercropping with common annual crops is feasible and results in overyielding about 75% of the time in conventional production. Okay, I'm going to stop there really quickly and explain this overyielding thing. It was new to me, but maybe some of you guys are familiar with this. They figure out overyielding by using something called the land equivalency ratio or LER. LER is used for figuring out how much land would be required for a monoculture crop to get the same yields as an intercrop. For example, and I hope I'm explaining this right, let's compare an acre of intercropped wheat canola with an acre of wheat and canola, but they're in a monoculture. So let's say the western half of the acre is pure wheat and the eastern half of the acre is pure canola. According to the University of Manitoba study, overyielding in this comparison was 1.13, which means the intercrop yields were higher than the monoculture yields. Anytime you have a number that's higher than one on the LER, that means you have overyielding. It also means for the monocultured wheat and canola, it needed an additional 0.13 of an acre to get the same yield as an acre of intercrop wheat canola. So in this case, you needed less land with the intercrop than you would with the monocrop, which it's a good thing. In intercropped wheat pea, the land equivalency ratio was 0.87 in the study. So that means you actually needed less land in a monoculture to get the exact same yield you would have got in an acre of intercropped wheat pea. I hope this makes sense. I'm pretty sure Dr. Bremer explains this in his presentation way better than I do. Here are the rest of the results from that study. The best crop combination tested in the experiment was canola pea, which overyielded 100% of the time under conventional management. The poorest combination was wheat pea, which had problems with weeds and lodging. Increasing the number of crops grown together resulted in better weed suppression generally. Including peas in the combination increased grain protein content, resulting in price premiums for the wheat. We'll get back to Dr. Bremer's presentation now. This next part, Dr. Bremer explains seeding rates. Oh, and seeding rates is another big deal. Um, here I'm, I'm showing some data from a study in Manitoba where they basically had uh, either a half rate, two thirds, or full of canola with half rate, two thirds, or full pea. And what they found what worked best was when they had a full rate of pea with a half rate of canola. And I've often used that sort of strategy as well. In other words, the more aggressive crop you got to, if you don't want it to just take over and you lose some of the synergy because one crop just does everything, it just, just takes out the other crop, you just give it a disadvantage. So we quite often, most of our studies, we've actually been going at about 30% for the oil seed and then maybe 80 to 100% for the pulse crop because they're generally less competitive. So that's another thing to think about, for sure. So uh, 
I've mentioned a few times already the overyielding. How do they measure that? They use this thing called land equivalent ratio, where basically uh, you take the yield that you get in your intercrop divided by what you would have got in a monocrop for all the different components to get uh, what they call land equivalent ratio. The amount of land required to grow the same amount of crop. Uh, and if it's more than one, so one means us, the same acre would grow the same amount of yield. If it's like 1.5 or two, that means you could grow as much on that one acre if it's two as two acres growing them separately. And again, I threw up some data from different studies on the prairies and some of them were one, but some of them were over 1.5. And they seem to cluster a bit. And that was one of the reasons why we got into doing some research is because, well, it didn't seem very, it seemed like there's actually a large potential benefit, but it seemed to vary quite a bit. And so if we had a better understanding of what it is, how to go about it, or what conditions are controlling it, we could hopefully have a better uh, yielding benefit or other benefits that come with it. So that, that was some of the uh, thinking behind our getting into this latest research. So like I said, I started this about three years ago. It's a collaborative project with uh, Alberta Agriculture, Dean Pauly and his group, and with uh, Ag Canada, Ben Ellert and his, his team. And we're looking at the potential of winter and the spring. So winter, which is hard, and the spring, pulse canola or pulse uh, oilseed intercrops to increase crop productivity in southern Alberta. So on my next slide, I just kind of go over the main factors that we were looking for. So we are basically, in our study, we're doing the lentil monocrop, the pea monocrop, and the oilseed monocrop, which was canola in 2018. In 2019, we switched it to mustard because of that better synchrony with harvesting. And then we also, uh, and then of course, we had the intercrops of so the lentil with the oilseed or the pea with the oilseed. So those are the main cropping treatments. On top of that, we had some nitrogen treatments. And we were, and I'll talk a bit more about that later. We were playing around with some N15 to, just to try to figure out where the nitrogen comes from and what's it doing. We also played around with the uh, seeding rate. So we actually went from as low as the oil seeds, as low as 10, 30, and 75% of the monocrop rates for the oil seeds. So in other words, we cut them back. Sometimes we cut them way back. The pulse, pulses we left closer to their full rates, 75 or 100%. So that's the basic treatments that we ran with. and. The next thing I'm showing is the sites where we did that. And both years, because we've had uh, fairly droughty conditions here in southern Alberta, and we wanted to, you know, you only don't get so many cra cracks at the getting this done. And so we did, what we did is we had one site where we could add water, and we brought them up to pretty well normal or a little bit above normal rainfall, but with better timing. And the other one where it was fairly drought stress. So in 2018, we went to Chin Ridge, South Caver. We only got three inches of rain, uh, but there was a good amount in the soil. So we actually still got reasonable yields there. 
uh, compared to Lethbridge, where we had about seven inches between the, or almost eight inches between the two different sources, and we still used three inches of, from the from the from the soil. Uh, last year we went to two sites again, a little bit more range, five inches, but less in the soil. So again, fairly dry, versus again a, a site where we added water. So we're getting a, a larger range and moisture. So each year we got a droughty site and a well watered site. Keep going. Uh, the next slide I'm just showing the uh, the small plot combine or the cedar. I mean that we used. And what we did is we put the, uh, basically we had a side bander that we used for putting in the pulse seed. And so that's like two inches over from the canola or the mustard, which is seeded shallow in the normal seed row. So we have maybe about a two inches between them. So we, we, we got them in close proximity, but still managed to get them at the best uh, depths for emergence, so that was a good good way for us to do that. Now, like I say, one of the questions that we wanted to answer was like, what's happening with nitrogen? Where is that nitrogen coming from? And on my next slide, I'm just kind of showing um, the different potential sources. So their normal nitrogen that you breathe contains almost completely the nitrogen that has an atomic number of 14. There's just a very little, there's 0.3663% of that is the heavier isotope N15. And so we call that a del N of zero. So if a pulse crop gets all of its nitrogen from the air, it should have a del of zero. On the other hand, if it's going to take it just from the soil, there's a natural little bit of heaviness in the soil, and it will naturally have a delta N of about 6 to 10. Not a whole lot, but it's measurable. And then we also added some uh, fertilizer, which we could artificially enrich. We just enriched it a little bit, 0.44%. Um, so 0.367 you know, versus 0.4, but we can still measure that. And that's a delta N of 200, 200. So if you plant an oil seed without any fertilizer on that, it will get the del of the soil. So the soil is 10, it will be 10. If the pulse crop growing there with it has a del of one, that means that 90% of it came from fixation, 10% came from the soil. And we can do the same thing with the systems where they added fertilizer. This part of Dr. Bremer's presentation got me wondering if nitrous oxide could be sequestered. Like I said, Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is obsessed with soil carbon sequestration. And I know there's soil bacteria that can sequester methane. So why not nitrous oxide? Maybe it sounds like a dumb idea. But I did find a study by the University of Regina and they discovered that agriculture ponds, and I'm, I'm assuming they mean dugouts by this, we're acting like a nitrous oxide nitrogen sink, certain ponds that is. Looking at dugouts in Saskatchewan, the study found that nitrogen fertilizer runoff was getting into these dugouts, but the dugouts that were more than three meters in depth and shielded from the wind by things like small hills were acting as a nitrogen sink. 
I found this a little odd at first because when I think back to the perennial grains episode we did with Erin Daly from the University of Alberta, I'm pretty sure she said that it was the extra moisture that gets into the ground during the spring melt that results in larger releases of nitrous oxide from the soil. A dugout full of water sounded like an absolute disaster to me. But the study went on and sorry, I I only read an article on the study. I didn't actually read the study itself. The study goes on to explain that in deep still water, it helps algae growth. Algae eats nitrogen and when they die, that nitrogen falls to the bottom of the dugout with them, sequestering it in a way. So there may be an argument there for having more dugouts on croplands, which I realized during a wet year like the one we're having this year sounds like a really bad idea. But this is Alberta, and I think we all know that another drought isn't really that far away. So maybe having that extra water holding capacity could come in handy for production, and you can prevent nitrous oxide from being released in the process. My next graph, what I'm looking at is what, where did that N15 come from in these intercrop systems? So under dry land conditions, basically what we're seeing is the or drought conditions, the lentil is much less efficient or effective at taking up nitrogen from fertilizer or, you know, as well from soil. And that's not too surprising because its root system is just not as uh, extensive as for pea and the oil seeds. Uh, so it's about half as effective, efficient. Pea's a, pea is better, and the highest was always our oil seed crop. When we put them together, uh, what you, you really saw was that, that that oil seed, even though we only planted it at 30% of the monocrop seeding rate, it was very aggressive, especially the canola. I mean, it took 10 of those nitrogens for every one that it got from the, that the lentil was able to get. Um, pea is a little bit more competitive, but not a whole lot more so. In the second year, we did it with mustard. We found that, again, the mustard was quite a bit more competitive than the lentil, but about equally competitive with the pea. Under irrigated conditions, what you find is that because it, nitrogen is more mobile in that system, when they're monocrop, the post crops, even lentil, can get at least the fertilizer can get almost as much fertilizer nitrogen as the pea or the oilseed, just because it's more mobile in that system. You don't need that big root system in order to get a mobile nutrient. But the same thing happened when we, even though the post crops by themselves could get just as much of that fertilizer as as the oil seeds, when you put them together, the oil seed pretty well took up almost all of it and just left a little bit for the, the pulse crop. And that was especially true with, with, with canola and, uh, and lentil. However, of course, pulse, pulses, lentils, and peas are pulse crops, legumes, so they could just fix more. That was, that's one of the reasons why that system works so well. And what I show in my next graph is that the percentage of the nitrogen that they get from fixation always went up when they intercropped. So it was maybe about 60% or 40% when they monocrop. When you intercrop them, they go up another 10 or 20%. So that's kind of what we want to see, right? Uh, That's the advantage we want to see. 
However, we noticed that the amount actually fixed actually went down because the nitrogen yield of the pulse crop decreased because of the competition. But anyways, what we're kind of showing is kind of like some of this competition between the nitrogen, between the pulse crop and the, and, and the oilseed crops. And that's why we're getting some of these synergies. Now, my next bunch of, looks, looks kind of complicated, but I'll just kind of walk through it. What I'm showing here is basically just the yields in bushels per acre of the monocrops and the intercrops. And uh, when, uh, so in our, for example, in our very dry year in 2018, we got only, we got about 30 bushels uh, from either lentil or fertilized canola, just over that with the pea. So it was actually fairly similar for all three of them. When we put them together, we actually got, uh, well, for the lentil, it, it only had a pretty good lentil yield was when, when the very low rate of canola was seeded. And then as you increase the canola seeding rate, you get more a higher proportion of canola in, in your harvest and less of the of the pulse crop. And that was very consistent, irrigated dryland. It, it, you know, the percentages change, but that same trend. So it, it gives you a way of controlling what you want in the end. So if you want more of your oil seed, or if you want more of your pulse crop, you can just change the number of seeds or your, your plant densities, or if you change the nitrogen, any additional nitrogen in the system will favor the oil seed versus the pulse crop. And so, so that and it worked very consistently there, even though the yields, I mean, in some systems we got like, uh, you know, 50 to 80, I think we almost had 70 bushel an acre uh, lentil in our first year. Really, that was really a good result. But, you know, the same thing is, was, was happening. And then when we make these calculations of over yielding this, this LER that I was talking about, you can kind of, I, what, what I take home messages here was like, which is the best way of going about it? And, that, and what I'd say is for lentil with, you know, oil seeds, because it's really not very competitive, you really don't want to put any nitrogen in that system or use it on a field with low nitrogen status. Uh, but you still wanted to have a decent amount of your canola in there unless you really wanted to grow lentil or get yet lentil bushels. But it's really hard to get that balance right, really. The pea, because it's more competitive, uh, it seemed to do better when you actually even had a bit of extra nitrogen in it. It just seemed to still give you that overyielding uh Benefit. So, if you're in a system where you got more nitrogen in the field, uh, that was a better combination, and that seemed to work really well. And there, the moderate rate of the canola uh, seemed to work the best. So, uh, too little or too much seemed to reduce the overyielding benefits. 
last, well, almost the last slide I'm here, showing these LARs from a bunch of studies in Canada, including these studies, but other studies, and then also a bunch in Australia, because we actually had a group come through here last year, summer from Australia, having a look at all these things. And one of the things I wanted to just emphasize is that they had some, that, you know, like I say, it's possible to get these over-yielding LARs of two. I mean, on average, it was one and a half, which is pretty high. Uh, but even on average, 1.50% extra yielding, it looks pretty good. Some of it was because uh, some of the pea crops, especially in the Australian studies, were ones that really uh, didn't stand up very well. And that allowed a bigger uh, over. That's another type of benefit you can get when you you can get better stability of your stand, which has a lot of different advantages. So, anyways, the, the main point here was there is a large range, and it's but it can be really high to go with the other potential benefits. So, just to sort of bring it all together, uh, certainly intercropping has been increasing interest in it. There is this potential large overyielding effect. But that's maybe not always the driver for why people would do that. There's these other farming system benefits for uh, reduced inputs, for reduced disease, uh, improved soil health. There's challenges for doing that for doing it, but none of, none of these are these are all surmountable. So you know, seeding. Uh, you know, often you you got one that has to be shallow and one that has to be deep. You, you got to come up with a way of doing that. Uh, weed control, if you're just depending on herbicides, you might have less options. So that's maybe a, a disadvantage. But again, you've got more competition because you've got two crops in this system. So that counteracts that. Uh, harvesting, you've got to just figure out how to, how to separate them. But again, that can be done. And what it really seems like is a lot of farmers are out there. They're doing that. Uh, some more research as well. But, you know, that's really is where it makes the difference. Just farmers trying it out, figuring out what works for them. And then uh, we'll see where I, I would see, expect to see a lot more people trying that over the next while. found that Australian study Dr. Bremer was referring to. I'll put it up on the website so you can read it. It was undertaken by the Grains Research and Development Corporation of the Australian government, and it involved about 20 farms across Australia. It also involved checking out intercropping experiments and research in France and Canada. The study found that on average, around 12% more land was needed for monocrops to get the same yields as intercrops. Intercrop cereal legumes, for example, beat out its monocropped equivalents in terms of yields in 49 out of 72 comparisons. And yet the producers involved in the study weren't motivated by yields. According to the study for the producers involved, yields were actually secondary to soil health, reduced input costs, and risk management. The researchers found a similar motivation among Canadian producers when they came over here. Canadian producers who were intercropping, that is. 
I don't feel qualified to open up that conversation on whether or not we're too fixated on yields in the agriculture community. I know people that I have a lot of respect for, so like soil microbiologist Dr. Christine Nichols, thinks we need to stop talking about yields. If you listen to episode 20, you can get her perspective. It's a really interesting one. Now, the last words of this episode are going to go to our man, Andy and Hilda, and what he wrote for our farmer's blog, but my two cents on intercropping. Intercropping really isn't a new idea. Dr. Bremer in the Q&A pointed out the whole wheat, pea, barley combination has been used for livestock for quite some time now. Diversity helps with resilience. I liked how Dr. Bremer said that having different crops planted together is, in a way, hedging your bets. If it turns out to be a dry year or a wet year like this year, at least you have a crop in the ground that may be able to thrive in one of those conditions. Finally, and maybe this is more of a question than anything, if overyielding is so common with intercrops, Does that mean we can leave more land for wildlife in our agricultural cropping systems? Here's what Andy wrote. The five principles of soil health are a guide for us. We believe that it's important to stay connected with these principles to keep on the path towards soil health and functionality. We run stripper headers and disc drills to try and keep as much soil armor on an undisturbed soil surface. We also try to reduce our chemical disturbance by decreasing our reliance on pesticides and fertilizers through management decisions, such as seasonal fertilizer application and avoiding the use of insecticides and fungicides. Winter cereals and longer season crops like corn, sunflowers, and flax help us to keep living roots in the soil for as long as possible. We try to stick with a diverse crop rotation, though just a rotation of monocrops is not enough diversity. Animal integration is the final pillar we're dabbling with. It is probably the hardest to implement, but we do have some young ranchers in the area that are always looking for more grazing opportunities. One very important part of the equation is having a peer group of like-minded individuals from your local and regional area whom you can bounce ideas off of. I'm in a group with five other farmers and a former Alberta agriculture researcher. It's great to have a place to discuss these practices in a supportive but also critical environment. They can be as formal or informal as you wish. Today's technology allows us to be in constant contact without needing numerous face-to-face meetings. I'm not in the business of telling people what they should do, that he says in parentheses here, unless they ask me. But I can still say where I've come from, where I am today, and where I'm hoping to get to. After reading this, I'd say that if there were to be three things for you to remember, they wouldn't be about intercrops or companions. Instead, I would say, be willing to try different, even crazy things. Find a peer group to bounce ideas off of and know the real reasons you're even doing this or anything for that matter. 
Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based organization empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, and webinars. We work with rural communities to develop their own renewable energy projects, and we produce a farmer's blog and, of course, this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka in Athabasca, Deandra Brucehead in Kainai First Nation, Jennifer Ford in Peace River, and myself, Derek Leahy in Olds. The podcast is funded by the Alberta Real Estate Foundation and Energy Efficiency Alberta. Parts of the podcast were recorded in Calgary, which means they were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm.